Happy Kentucky Derby week, everyone. The 148th running is near. Naomi Tucker here. Talk racing to me. Instead of doing a handicapping segment, for which I would like to point you all towards the In The Money Media Derby and Oaks Monster Pods. Terrific job there, guys. Tremendous content. This show isn't about being Team Zandon, Epicenter, Mo Donegal, Messier, Tabor, Cyberknife, Simplification, etc. I'm sure I've missed a few. This episode covers Kentucky Derby history. What was the distance for the first running? How did field sizes fluctuate and later get regulated? How have Phillies fared in the past? And where did the name Run for the Roses come from? And much more. I spent an hour with freelance turf writer and author Jennifer Kelly, who has written about Sir Barton, the first ever Triple Crown winner, the making of the Triple Crown, and has a book coming out in the spring of 2023 on Gallant Fox and his son Omaha, the only sire progeny duo to have won a Triple Crown. There is no better way to get yourself in the mood for this year's Kentucky Derby than to uncover a whole variety of tidbits about the most exciting two minutes in sports. Jennifer, happy to have you with me on Talk Racing to Me for the first time ever. Yeah. Where are you coming in from right now? Oh, Naomi, it's nice to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. I actually live in northern Alabama, so I'm a few hours away from from Louisville at the moment. I'm probably about six hours away, but we've we've had our share of derby experiences. So I'm excited to talk about anything related to derby or Triple Crown. That's that's my area. Well, I can't wait to to dig into your knowledge and, and get all the fun snippets out. Wait, which do you obviously how many Kentucky Derbies have you have you been to? I've only been to the one. Um, when I turned 30, my husband was very nice and got me tickets to the Derby uh, as a, like a bucket list thing. And so uh, in 2007, I got to see Street Sense win. And that was the first time I cashed on the Derby. I won the Exacta box with him and hard spun. And it was like a hundred dollars, which was great. Cause then I went and spent it all at the museum the next day. And, uh, <laughs> but I've been to the Preakness a couple of times and the only one I haven't done is Belmont yet. Oh, that, that remains on your bucket list. Oh, I feel like yep. I got you on the wrong theme for the podcast. Though. You should be giving out handicapping advice, clearly, oh, instead of no, historic no, no, no. details. <laughs> I don't know how I arrived at that either, because I that was so long ago now. It's like, I guess, I, I don't know. I just, the, those two names just stuck out to me, and I bet them as a box and, you know, was pleased to see them come home one, two. <laughs> no, very, very good picks. Now, you have written about the creation of the Triple Crown. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to give all of us a brief overview of how the first leg of the Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby, came about? Well, the Derby itself is modeled on the Derby in England, Epsom Derby. And so in 1872, uh, Meriwether Lewis Clark went to England and France with his wife. And he said, you know, we want to do something like this in America. So he went to England and was at, you know, 
at Epsom and watched the Derby. And then he went to France and did some watching over there, some racing. And then he came back to the United States and he wanted to create a version of that here. So he conceived of the Kentucky Derby. He pulled money with um, some gentlemen in the Louisville Jockey Club at the time and was able to raise enough money to build Churchill Downs on the grounds of some land that his uncle owned. And then in 1875, they actually, you know, staged the first Kentucky Derby at a mile and a half with Aristides <laughs> winning the first one. And, you know, Matt Wynn, who later was, you know, famous for making the Derby, the Derby was in attendance at that very first Kentucky Derby. And that's why he was the right person to bring the Derby up to national prominence because he was so invested in the race from the very beginning. So that's kind of like the tacit beginnings of the race is it's definitely modeled after the English version. And, but we've made it very much our own American iconic moment in racing. And that also explains the original distance being yes. a mile and a half. Right. But then it did change later on to a mile and a quarter. How did that kind of come about or when was that? That was 1895 or 96. And I need to double check that. And I make found 96, sure. 1896. 96. So <laughs> what had happened was the um, Meriwether Lewis Clark had run the racetrack for the first 20 years or so of its existence. And then it started running into financial issues. So a group of people, including um, Matt Wynn, bought the racetrack. And what they did was they revamped the Derby to make it more attractive to, you know, people to want to have their, you know, bring their horses basically west to run in it. So they shortened it to a mile and a quarter. And then they, uh, but they kept it about the same time of the year. So it's always been in May. It's I think it's only run in June, maybe once or twice. Um, of course, run in September in 2020. Yeah. But um, that was the whole shortening it to a mile and a quarter was basically to attract more people to to ship their horses to Louisville and actually run in the race. Was there a thought process as well that it's always or nearly always, as you just highlighted, run <laughs> on the first Saturday in May? That came about um not very excitingly because of the way that uh, the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission assigned its dates for the different racetracks in the area. So, and I just read an article for Blood Horse about the 1922 Derby and Preakness, which were run on the same day. And the whole, you know, discussion behind the article was to explain how this came to be. So they would always run the Derby on the first day of Churchill Downs meet in uh, the spring meet. So the Kentucky Association racetrack in Lexington would finish and then immediately uh, Churchill Downs would pick up and start their spring meet. And so they decided to run the Derby that first day of the meet. So it always ended up being sometime in mid-May and then they shifted it to the first Saturday of May in the 30s i believe because they were um trying to not compete with the preakness after having that incident where they ran on the same day in 1922 <laughs> so what was the explanation given for that 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 ended up happening it was it was the calendars so when in that time pimlico would run the preakness on the last day of their meet and 
Churchill would run the Derby on the first day of theirs. And that year they pushed the fir- the date uh, that Churchill would open back a week so oh. that it opened May 13th. And that happened to be the day that Pimlico was running the Preakness and that was their last day of their spring meet. And so like they didn't, we're not going to, um, Churchill refused to change. Matt Wynn said, we're not going to change the date. This has always been run on this Saturday. You know, this is usually the second Saturday of May. And Pimlico, um, the Maryland Jockey Club's like, we're not going to change our date either because, okay. you know, <laughs> because at the time there wasn't that sort of, the cooperation wasn't as expected necessarily mm-hmm. as we expect it now. And so neither of them were willing to back down. And, it, and the whole article is about the sort of arms race that erupted from all this <laughs> and well, how, so, how all that like fell out in the, in the end. So. Oh, well, I, I was going to, I've got two questions. The first okay. one being, you said he was second Saturday in May. Obviously now it's the first Saturday. Right. So that was done to avoid that happening again right that was yeah eventually that's how it fell out um for 1923 until 1932 the preakness actually preceded the derby by a week so if like i just finished my book on gallant fox in omaha when gallant fox won the kentucky derby he won it eight days after he won the Preakness. So the Preakness was May 9th and he won the Derby on May 17th. And then by the time his son Omaha came along and won the Derby, it had shifted and the Derby was the first Saturday in May and the Preakness was a week later. Wow. And then my second question in relation to this, you said you were outlining kind of the fallout of that incident. What, you know, ended up happening? They they ended up um, just being more. There's more cooperation between all the different uh, racing entities because they've realized that there's a lot more to be gained from actually cooperating on when the dates happened rather than actually competing with each other. Because you know there were so many people, prominent owners who were unhappy that the races happened to be on the same day. They, you know, they had nominated more than one horse to the race. And, you know, they really did want to run in both. Cause by this point, both were $50,000 purse, you know, races. These were not small amounts of money at that time. And, you know, there were owners that really wanted to send their horses for both. And if you run them on the same day, we can't do that. And so thankfully you know, they all started cooperating a bit more and that's really how you get, you know, in more closer to the schedule that we have now, which really isn't, is a fairly a new phenomenon in the, in the history of the triple crown. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just wild to read about it. Cause it's, it, it echoes so much today when you think about how the different rules about drugs, um, you know, how they use Lasix and other types of issues arise because it's really jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And it was very much like that in the 1920s. And it very much is like that now in 2022. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how things have, you know, changed for sure. Mm. Yes. Um, when did, you were talking about the cooperation between the tracks and more of yes. the scheduling of these, what we now know as triple crown races. Yes. When did the term triple crown really come into use for these three races? Because I do believe reading that when Sir Barton was the first winner of these yes. three, it wasn't in, put into use really yet, or it wasn't as well known yet. It it was 
in that era, it was attributed, like if you said Triple Crown, people would think of the English version with the St. Leger and the 2000 Guineas and the Epsom Derby. So they didn't really use that for these three American races until about 1923 is the earliest I can find it in use, referring to those three races here. Um, most people will know the story well. It was Charles Hatton who coined it, or it was Brian Field for the New York Times who coined it. The re- the term was used before them. They picked it up and used it more regularly as a sort of shorthand to make it easier to write about the three races. But between 1919 and 1930, it the term picked up with usage, but wasn't really popularized until you get to the 1930s with Gallant Fox doing it in 1930 and then Omaha 1935 and then War Admiral 1937. So by 1935, the Daily Racing Forum actually used it in a headline, but it wasn't, they didn't really use it as a term per se as often until the thirties, but it, you know, other turf writers were using it before that. It just didn't catch on in the same way because really no one else had done it between 1919 and 1930. So, yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is how do tables have turned? Because (laughs) the American triple crown is so much more a term, a a goal for so many years than the English Triple Crown. Now, we're actually yes. saying English Triple Crown. We're not saying the Triple Crown because in my books, we're talking yes. about the American. Right. Of course, it you know still exists at 2000 years. Like I said, the Derby, the St. Ledger. Mm-hmm. But it really isn't that much of a goal anymore for owners. Not like it is over here. What would you attribute that to? Is that just, you know, culture, popularity, a variety of factors? I I think for the English, because their calendar is so spaced out, because you've got, like, I think the 2000 Guineas was just run this past weekend Mm -hmm. on Saturday, and then the Epsom Derby will be in June, right about Belmont time, and then they won't run the last, the St. Leger, until September. So because there's such a, you know, distance between the races, it doesn't have the same cachet. So the last one to do it was 1970. It was Nijinsky II. And others have attempted it since then, but it really doesn't hold the same value, I think, to English racing as the American one does to American racing. And I think that's why the Triple Crown means so much here is because we've, you know, not just given it that meaning, but also because you do it over five weeks and you concentrate it in this specific time of the year, it everyone's invested in it. And then once that season's over, and now it's building toward Breeders' Cup. So it's very much like you've got these, you know, two events, two major events that define our calendar. First is Triple Crown season, and second is Breeders' Cup season. And even for older horses, you know, they can, they've run in these events on the undercards you know derbies the derby undercard is huge with stakes races and same with the preakness and the belmont so now it's just become such a focus for our calendar that you know we you know it it just literally defines the entirety of the sport for you know the first half of the year whereas in england they've got royal ascot they've got you know their British own champions day yes so they have their own events and, mm-hmm. and they just haven't put they put more emphasis on it in an earlier time, like the first half of the 20th century, but it's really kind of fallen out of favor since then. At least that's the impression I've gotten. That's one of the things that I really want to do more research on is to see exactly why it shifted so much um, in terms of how they regard it. 
No, I think it's very interesting. And I do think you make a very good point when it comes to the fact that we, we have that kind of set calendar here. And I do absolutely love that in terms of horse racing. I've always loved the seasonality of mm-hmm. it ever since uh, I worked with two-year-olds and, and breezes and every year we'd have new yearlings coming in and we'd you know educate them and then they moved on there was always such a seasonality like the summer was quiet mm-hmm. and we get the babies in again sort of you know the end of you know the winter time mm-hmm. that I love that that and then you are very very busy in the springtime and there's an ebb and a flow and I mm-hmm. feel like in America that is very much the case as how you described it and I love that. And perhaps the public has fallen in love with it too because you know what to expect at, at most points throughout the year. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the Kentucky Derby, of course. Okay. Kentucky Derby week is upon us. Yay! <laughs> I was looking up some, yeah, I was looking up some just interesting fun facts, uh, including figuring out how the Derby field size has kind of grown and shrunk over the years it was limited to 20 starters in in 1975 and that was a year after 23 runners lined up on its 100th anniversary in 1947 that was won by candidate and angel cordero jr Mm -hmm. could you give us some background about the change in field sizes since the kentucky derby's inception you know, in the early years, the first 20 years or so, um, it the field size was fairly healthy for the first few runnings. And then as the financial issues set in for the Churchill Downs and the uh, Louisville Jockey Club, they kind of, um, they lost favor and the field size got very small, especially around the turn of the century. Um, it got larger as the purses went up, the different you know, in 1919, when Sir Barton won, he was basically nominated for the race and just ran. <laughs> you know, there was no point system. There was really no threshold for, mm-hmm. you know, stakes wins and, you know, that kind of uh, qualifications that you would need later. Uh, the field sizes have remained fairly consistent between 10 and 15 horses, just depending on the area you're talking about. Uh, when we got to the the one in 1974 that you were talking about, because that was the 100th anniversary, like everybody wanted to run. <laughs> I think they realized that that was too unwieldy of a field <laughs> for that. <laughs> safety for that issues, perhaps. Track. Yeah, yeah. Or the safety issues. I mean, it just, it, I, I cringe now at 20 horses and I understand why there are 20 horses, but I still cringe because it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of input to take in to have that many horses in a field uh, for the longest time before the point system, the field was limited uh, based on graded stakes earning or stakes earnings. So, you know, you couldn't make it in the gate unless you had a certain amount of stakes uh, earnings. So that's mm-hmm. how so many sprinters became a part of the field. And for so long was that it didn't matter if you won your, <laughs> if you won, you know, a six furlong stakes race or a, a nine for a long stakes race, you had X number of dollars in stakes earnings. So therefore you could be in the gate now since 2013, when they instituted the point system, you know, now it's, you know, a specific series of races and they limit it to 20, but I don't, there really was never a cap on it before that. As, as far as I know, except for after 1974. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, you can read the different uh, forum charts and see kind of what their qualifications 
were, but it's rarely fewer than 10 since the turn of the century into the 20th century. But, you know, it's rarely, it hasn't been 20 (laughs) very many times until like the 21st century and now it's obviously we cap it at 20 but you know generally in a given year you'll have a few horses scratch out so hopefully like when american pharaoh won i think there were 15 or 16 in that field that year but that that kind of explains the ebbs and flows of the derby it's it all just depends on what particular year you're talking about what sort of threshold they had for making it in the gate but sir martin made it in with zero wins and about you know, five thousand dollars, six thousand dollars in actual earnings at that point. So there was very different rules about <laughs> how you could make it in the gate for the Derby back then. So, do you think? Obviously, you have intimate knowledge of the majority of fields for the Kentucky Derby going a long, long way back, much more mm. than the majority of us handicappers <laughs> would you know, ever have looked at them. Clearly, it would have changed the feel of the field. Like you highlighted less sprinters in there, more routes mm-hmm. based on the point system. How do you think that has changed the outlook of the Derby as well as perhaps the quality? Do you, do you think it makes a massive dif- difference? Do you think it was a good change to implement the point system? I I don't know. I understand the the thought process behind the point system. Um, I think what it does though, since all the points races are not, are more longer, like a mile or longer, you're going to get fewer sprinters to do the, like, you know, set the fractions early and then um, clear out for closers. So you really don't get those come from behind wins like you've seen in past derbies. A lot of um, the more recent derby winners have been either on the lead, like Authentic, I think was mostly on the lead in his, or they've been in that first flight of horses. So that's that's one of the reasons why I'm waiting for the the gate draw tomorrow, the post position draw, because I'm not going to pick my derby horse until I know where that horse is, where the horses are going to line up. So now with, you know, so few sprinters or so few short, you know, early speed horses in the gate, um, you have much more competition for that that front flight of horses. That's going to give you that best advantage when you get around that final turn into the stretch so I understand the, the value of the point system and I understand, you know, what it does for, you know, the Derby itself. I'm just, I'm still not a hundred percent on it because I feel like there's, there've been some elements of earlier derbies that have kind of been omitted because, you know, all the, all the qualifying races are longer than eight furlongs, which they should be because you want horses that are obviously going to be able to at least attempt the distance. But yeah, I, I, I go both ways because I see the value of the way we've done it in the past, but I also see the value of the way we're doing it right now. Yeah. I do understand where they were coming from and trying to, perhaps change the race complex for what they thought was better and more classy, more that, you know, looking towards that classic generation that you would see in the English derby, where you are going Mm. a mile and a half, perhaps in a way shifting it a little bit towards those out-and-out router types in comparison to allowing the sprinters in there. So I, I do understand it as well. 
out of the Kentucky Derby, of course, Kentucky Derby being such a vital race in the season, perhaps the one race that majority of the owners would like to win. I have spoken to some Maryland people. They keep saying the Preakness, but there we are. <laughs> um, there's been 37 Kentucky Derby winners that have been inducted in the National Museum of Racing Hall of Fame. American Pharaoh, Triple Crown winner, the most recent edition. Mm-hmm. Who would be your favorite of all of them? I think I can perhaps guess, but I'm going to leave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's... If you have to... The ones that I are my favorites, so the ones of all time, I'm going to have to be, you know, biased and say the ones I've written about because, <laughs> you know, obviously I've spent <laughs> a lot of time with them. Uh, so Gallup Fox and Omaha and Sir Barton, of course. And Sir Barton, ultimately, just because of the a relationship I've had with him and his history. But for the ones I've actually seen, as in I watched them on television or I was there for them, the first one was Winning Colors. But the one I've, uh, I come back to every, <laughs> every time is Sunday Silence. Like, I am no way. die hard Sunday Silence. Every time, every time you just, I, that horse gets me in the fields every time I see him. <laughs> tr- I literally had written down that mine would be Sunday Silence. And you kept, wow. Okay. T- tell me more. Well, I was, that, that year I was 12. Um, that was the first year that I had actually been able to follow the prep season from beginning to end. And mind you, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, which is very, not a horse racing place, but we had a racetrack at the time. And so there was more of it around and I was able to watch all the preps on television and I had kind of built my list of horses I liked. And for some reason I gravitated towards Sunday silence more than I did toward easy goer. Although I have lots of people I've spoken with who are diehard easy goer people and you know, that you should have won the Derby. And I, I love the hard scrabble, hard trying, very quirky Sunday silence, especially going down the stretch because he's kind of weaving and it's because he's being buffered by the noise. Cause they said that like he was running really greenly in the stretch. Well, you know, I don't think they had thought to put earplugs or anything in his ears. So he's kind of reacting to the noise <laughs> and he's just sort of winding his way down the stretch. And I just, I don't know that one just gets me that horse just gets me every time I see him. And I just, that, that 1989 Preakness is probably my favorite race of all time that I've actually watched on, you know, in person or on television. I, I could watch that every day and just love every single second of it and get really emotional toward the end. <laughs> he was such a cool runner for me. It's actually weird how I fell in love with Sunday Silence because it wasn't initially looking at his racetrack performances. Mm-hmm. It was because I was working with a lot of young horses i was mm-hmm. getting on a lot of fillies and caught by deep impact now deep oh, impact yeah. is the son of mm-hmm. sunday silence of course one of the most prolific japanese sires yes at present and i was thinking okay well hold on who's who who, who you know who was sunday silence let, let me go <laughs> into this and i started watching his races and of course you know watch the rivalry between him and an easy goer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately for Sunday Silence, that rivalry ended up costing him the, the triple crown. But then he got yeah. back in the British Cup Classic and, and bested easy goer again. And I just kind of fell in love, mm-hmm. fell in love basically with this incredibly tough 
course, of course, fortunately, Deep Impact, his son, is no longer with us. Uh, yes. But just kind of, so via pedigree, I, I got into the race aspect. And then, of course, Mr. Whittingham, such a legendary trainer. Actually, mm-hmm. weird fun fact, Chris McCarron, who rode him yes. in the British Cup Classic, was at Laurel Park today. And I got oh, to meet him, which I thought nice. was the coolest thing ever not fangirling oh, i actually took a picture with him and that's probably only jockey that i've asked to take a picture with no offense to all the other jockeys everyone's awesome i just don't really do that and i was like it's chris mccarran yes <laughs> so I, I, yeah i've met him too i met him um a couple of years ago at keeneland and I, I he probably doesn't remember me from a hole in the wall but i was over there like you rode ali shiba <laughs> Yeah. And Sunday mm-hmm. silence. And I was very, I met Mike Smith at the, at Churchill Downs in 2019. And I swear it was like meeting the Beatles. It was like, I was gonna, I don't even remember what I said to him. I must've made a fool of myself, but then he remembered me when I saw him at Preakness, which I thought was, was awesome. But like Sunday silence was, I don't know, that horse just, what it, what another thing that Sunday silence really taught me though, was how, good a horse has to be to win the triple crown Mm -hmm. because to win the derby and to win the preakness like he did and then to go into the belmont and to try so hard and he 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 was tried and then easygoer just kind of you know blew him away it was like when america pharaoh won in 2015 it really resonated with me just how good a horse has to be at that particular moment to be Mm -hmm consistent enough to do that to do all three of those races because i mean it you know we've had so many come close and to have a course of sunday silence's quality fall short that has to tell you like exactly how challenging the triple crown really is i very much agree with you on that sentiment because just even watching the kentucky derby you can tell how these horses are bumped about. These horses are put into situations and scenarios mm-hmm. that they have not encountered before because of the fact that there are a lot more horses in there. Plus, they're all very, very talented individuals there. So it's kind of this mashup of, let's say you're a young athlete. You've always been the best in, in you mm-hmm. know, at your school and you think you're all that. you got all the confidence in the world. And all of a sudden, you get thrown into, let's say, a national championship. And all of a sudden, everyone there has been on the same level as you at their respective schools. They all think that they're the man or the girl, the lady. And you are being bumped around. Your Mm -hmm. perhaps confidence is being knocked. I feel like that's the equivalent for the three-year-olds as well going into the Kentucky Derby. That's how tough of a race it is. And sometimes horses run in it and they don't come back to what they were like before because of perhaps that experience. It is quite quite the race well i wanted to also give some credit to the fairer sex into what is traditionally a male affair you already mentioned one of them three willy frillies oh my god three fillies oh that was quite (laughs) the mispronunciation three fillies have won the kentucky derby yes winning college genuine race regret right how tough is it for a girl to compete in this it's well, as you can see, since it's been a it's been a while since we've had a filly even try the Derby, and I know the point system has a little bit to do with that now. But fillies, you know, colts and fillies mature at different rates. We all we all understand that. Um, I think there are plenty of fillies out there that could get the distance for sure. It's that overwhelming experience of being 
you know, uh, like bandied about and, and mm-hmm. in traffic and, and there's, it's, it takes a hard trying Philly to do that. And we've seen it, you know, genuine risk was as tough as they came. And she was of all the Phillies that have won the Derby. She is the one that has performed the best in the triple crown as a whole. She won the Derby. She came in second in the Preakness and then she was fourth in the Belmont and like winning colors. She tried the Preakness. I, she didn't, I don't think she, uh, she didn't finish in the money that year. And I don't remember if she tried the Belmont and, you know, regret back in the day, regret on, in her day was a very, you know, excellent, hard trying Philly, but you know, that was a different time before we had the triple crown. So she, she didn't compete at that level, but Phillies can do it. You're just going to find it less likely now with the point system because you're going to have to have an owner like with secret oath who's willing Mm -hmm. to put their fillies out there in that company and you know the oaks has been become a very you know classic race alongside the derby so (laughs) there's nothing wrong with winning the oaks but i think it's going to take a really really extraordinary filly in our time to duplicate those feats. And I think that's one of the things about the point system that's kind of been like a, an intended side effect was just that it sort of discourages people from, you know, wanting to try their fillies because they're, you know, having to, they can't just run in certain races or got to run in these races against this company. And it's like, you know, it's, if you can stay in your division and still win something like the Oaks, just why not do that? So it's all these Phillies have done are amazing heart. And if you can read the stories about any of them, like the year that um, Gallant Fox won the triple crown and when the Derby was the Philly Alcibiades was in that race. And she actually led for the first half mile, three quarters and Alcibiades went on and won, you know, quite a few races herself and then became a blue hen Philly later on. So a blue hen mare, excuse me, later on. So there have been a, historic Phillies that haven't won, but have competed and, and, you know, made it, made an impact later on. So they're there. You just kind of have to find them now because we don't have as many of them as we used to. It's certainly quite a tall task as well as the fact that you already mentioned how prestigious the Oaks, the Kentucky Oaks has become, especially this year. Oh my God, what a gosh. It just, (laughs) it makes sense if you have a Philly that why wouldn't you go for the Oaks? Now it helps, of course, with Secret Oath that D. Wayne Lucas was the trainer in question of winning colors, and and he did try mm-hmm. her against the boys in the Arkansas Derby, but most likely gonna line up still in the Oaks. Uh, of course, uh, as we say, finger on the pulse there, but that certainly helped. So I I do get that it's not something done as frequently anymore in today's no. day and age because of the options that you have as an owner to put her in with her own sex in a very prestigious race that Mm -hmm. people do remember and do watch every Mm -hmm. single year as well. Now let's move on to some couple of other things I really wanted to highlight. We were already discussing this before we went on air, talking about the current time record for the Kentucky Derby, the mile and a quarter still held by Secretariat in 1973. Of course, the sub two minutes, hence also that name, you know, the fastest two minutes in sports. Mm-hmm. The only other winner of the Kentucky Derby that did that was Monarchos in 2001. But he's not actually the second 
fastest winning time overall. He's no the fastest second fastest time overall. He's the second fastest winning time. Yeah. He's the third fastest <laughs> overall. Could you explain to us which most clever people already know and have figured out that most likely the runner-up behind Secretariat might have just had a hand in that. Yeah, the year the Secretariat won in 73, he had a very um, astute rival in Sham. And in any other year, Sham, like Alidar, Sham would have been, you know, a champion. And he he might have won his own series of classics. Uh, you know, we'll never know, obviously. But Secretariat won the Derby in one minute, 59 and change. And then Sham, based on the the order between the two of them had the length that Secretariat won by, they conjectured that Sham also would have run a sub two, two minute Derby Mm -hmm. (laughs) and won had he not been competing against Secretariat. So uh, Sham is the only other besides Monarchos and obviously Secretariat to actually finish the Derby in less than two minutes. It's uh, it's quite a feat to, you know, to get logged that time and still only be second. Oh, poor Sham. <laughs> poor Sham, indeed. Faster than any other Kentucky Derby winner yet has, aside from Secretariat, yet right. has not won a, a, a Derby. Kentucky <laughs> Derby. Yeah, because Monarco, so Secretariat ended up being 159.4, so N2, mm. but I, I'm just going to go with the actual split seconds here to make it a little bit easier for everyone listening to it. And then Monarco's was 159.97, whereas okay. then Sham was estimated to be within the parameters of 159.74 yeah. and 159.93, still making him faster mm-hmm. than Monarco's on the top end. Oh, my heart, my heart breaks for him. <laughs> If you if you ever get a chance to read about Sham, and there's a couple of books out there about him, he's a he is a fascinating story, and he is he's just one of those horses that you just can't help falling in love with reading about him and learning about his history because he never raced again after the Belmont. So if you watch, you know the Secretariat's Belmont, and they talk about they were you know he and Sham were running head and head for a chunk of the race, and then Sham just kind of falls back. Well, you know he was injured in the Belmont, and he never raced again, and it's such a it's such a wonderful story. You know, even though it ended not so happily for the horse, mm-hmm. he you know he did go on to sire a few horses and and really make an impact later. And reflecting upon these times for the Kentucky Derby over that mile and a quarter on the Churchill dirt course mm-hmm. do you think that we would ever see secretary's record broken or do you anticipate more horses running sub two minute bouts which clearly only three horses in entire history of the running of kentucky derby have done that's always possible i don't i don't know given our recent history, especially with the style that the Derby's being run in, I don't know if we'll ever see that. Monar- like it's Secretariat Monarchos in the last 50 years. It's possible to see it again. It will just take someone who's got that stamina, but also that turn of foot. And, you know, the average time for the Derby is like two minutes two. And I, I if we ever get one, if we ever have an arrogate style performance in the Derby, 
So we have air gates like a mile and a quarter in the Travers. If we ever had that style performance where it just looks so effortless, I think it's possible, but it's going to be really tough with a field of 20 horses shuffling for position and trying to, <laughs> you know, stay out of trouble. So hopefully one day, but that's, that's the thing that keeps us coming back to the Derby. It's always that hope that the next year there's going to be something extraordinary. Yeah. Well, to be quite honest, I don't want Secretariat's records no. records in the Triple Crown to be <laughs> broken. I am absolutely in love with him, as no doubt many uh, people are. Do you think he's possibly the greatest Triple Crown ridder if you were to stack them up in a way, of course, based on the fact that he holds the records in those races? I, I've had people ask me in the past to rank them. And I find it hard to rank horses given the space between the years that, you know, different uh, Triple Crown winners won between 1919 and 1983 and stuff like that. What I always tell people is like Secretariat, like Sir Barton did it first, but Secretariat did it best. And honestly, don't think that you're ever going to see a horse do that again like there will be horses that will win the triple crown obviously american pharaoh did it and justify and you know after secretary out sale slew and affirmed like there will be horses that will do it again i just don't think you'll ever see a horse do it like that in such in that fashion and if they ever if someone ever does that it will probably i i bet it won't be in my lifetime so I hope I won't be alive to see it. I would break it. I would find it very upsetting just because my love of her secretary. Yes. I do wonder and that one day, because we are breeding for, for classiness, for speed. You'd mm -hmm. expect that at some point we might breed that kind of perfect specimen that you think could best that. But of course, secretary in a way was an anomaly, mm -hmm. as they coined him. Well, very much. And so as was man of war and it, it's something that you really can't put your finger on because it's such a, a nebulous thing to, you know, you, you like take your stallion and you get one good horse. And so you go back, take that mare back to that stallion over and over again, and you get something different every time. And it would be really difficult to nail down, you know, exactly how you do that. <laughs> how do you get another? Now I have, told people in the past like i think we're overdue for another super horse of that ilk because it was 50 years almost between um man of war and secretariat it's like we're kind of due for another one but mm -hmm. to do it in the way that those two did it i the whoever comes along to do something similar to them is going to set their own records and do it their own way and i just hope we're all able to appreciate it <laughs> but like to do it so no one will duplicate secretariat they just won't and it's not and it's all it's the times but it's also just the amount of feeling and attachment that we all have to him i just don't think you'll ever get a horse that will do that in terms of burrowing into our psyche and really being like you know the horse that we hold everybody else up to yeah i think you make a very eloquent point about breeding in general that combining a sire and a mare will get different results every, every single time and to replicate that is obviously quite impossible and perhaps that's also the beauty of the breeding game that it depends on a little bit of 
luck and the interchangeability between genetic disposition and then also the external factors mm-hmm. in which genes get activated, how a horse spends their first you know, two years of their life uh, being educated as well to bring out the best in them and, and to give them that basis to use and that disposition and professionality that will hold them up when everything else like during the Kentucky Derby is quite in their face <laughs> or quite busy. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely couldn't have put it better myself. A couple of other more fun questions before I let you go. Okay. The Kentucky Derby is of course also called the run for the roses due to that gorgeous blanket of red roses that is straight atop the Kentucky Derby winner each year. How did that tradition really come about? I'm assuming it was kind of more of a slow process but of course it became very 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 famous later on the uh i was reading a little bit about that today while i was preparing and uh the rose garland itself kind of appeared like the late 19th century so you know that first 20 years that meriwether lewis clark ran everything um the, the race got started, but it really didn't gain traction until you have Matt Wynn and his administration come in. So around 1896 is when they first presented a Rose Garland. But I think the red roses themselves predate that. There was a, a gentleman that had a, a post-derby party that had red roses, what we call American Beauty roses, um, actually at the party. And that sort of became connected to the race over time. But the red rose itself didn't become the official flower of the Derby until 1904. And then about 1925 is when um, they actually started calling it the run for the roses. And then the, uh, the garlands that we see uh, displayed on a horse in the winter circle was introduced in 1932 with Burgoo King. But if you go back through older wind photos, from the derbies that precede that you will see some sort of arrangement is displayed on a horse. Um, when I was doing the research on Sir Barton, I found a very brief newsreel that has him getting a, some sort of garland placed on him in the winter circle. It's five, six seconds max, but you know, there's definitely, you know, they're taking the hood off of him because he wore blinkers and they're putting some sort of garland on him, but because it's in black and white, I can't really tell what color it is, but Mm -hmm. definitely the, some sort of arrangement has been part of the Derby pretty much since, you know, around 1896. And then it formalized into the blanket of roses that we know of in the thirties. Of course, Sir Barton was uh, 1919. I was reading up on something saying that in 1925, Mm. New York sports columnist, the late Bill Coram, dubbed the classic race for three-year-olds as the run for the roses. And they'd, before that, already started to use the roses as Mm -hmm. a traditional way to honor the derby winner. So, of course, it's kind of tricky to figure out how exactly that took shape, aside from... (laughs) looking at tape like you've been doing so thank you for that and it is a wonderful tradition do you believe there's more than 500 or more roses involved Mm -hmm. oh god i read the number just earlier today and i think it's 400 more than 400 and it's and and then kroger does it now and i think that's one of my favorite parts of derby day is when you see them carry the blanket of roses in and it, it really seals for you that it is Derby Day. And here is 
the blanket of roses about to be, you know, placed on some horse at the end of the day. It's just, it's just magical to me, that part of it. Agreed, perhaps the most coveted bouquet of roses across the globe, yes. what it signifies and, and the glory that it represents uh, as well. Now, when people attend the Kentucky Derby or when they have Kentucky Derby parties, frequently people would have a sip of a, a mint julep being that traditional beverage. Of course, the Preakness has the, the Black Cat Susan uh, cocktail yes. as well. When did the trend for an official beverage emerge and how did they land upon a drink that I know lots of people like. I think it tastes a little bit like toothpaste. I'm not a fan. <laughs> so do you, I do just wonder where it came from. I am not 100% sure on that. It's The mint julep itself is older than the derby, but I want to say it was, it's like a springtime, I guess. I, I'd have to do more looking into that one because it's, it's one of those where it, there are some traditions that, become associated with like the derby but they have origins other places and then the actual coalescing into connection with the derby comes a little bit later so i'd have to do a little bit more (laughs) poking around about it they do mention it in when i was reading about early derby so it seems to be because bourbon is obviously a kentucky beverage um, yeah. It seems to be that that was like a springtime type of beverage that they would have used, and and it just, I guess, they it came to be associated with the race. Um, I don't have like specific off the top of my head. Yeah, so I I was kind of reading up on this a little bit myself, and it was saying that perhaps we can even assume that they were part of the first derby mm-hmm. in you know the eighteen hundreds, eighteen seventy five, because at the time that drink was popular in the state and they were kind of part of the culture and not just the derby itself and Mm -hmm. hence it was a logical transition in a way to kind of say hey it's going to be our official drink Uh, a fair few decades later I believe it was 1939 that they made that kind of official and then they also came up with those decorated glasses yes memorizing the 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 winners yeah those are I the earliest one that I actually have was in the fifties, but I know I don't think they were around in 1930 when Gallant Fox won. I think that comes later, but I'd have to do some more poking around to get specific dates. I want to say they might've even, I want to say it's the fifties when they really started doing that, but there might be some from earlier dates. I'd have to um, just kind of. I think you're right. Timeline wise. I read something that it was perhaps 19, 39 as well, the same year that they made that the official drink that they also started putting them in those glasses for for people to take home, the collector cups. Yes, uh, that sounds about right. Yeah, no, I I do love the tradition. Basically, if you think about the Kentucky Derby, there are a variety (laughs) of things that come to mind. It's the run for the roses. Mm. People drink mint juleps. Women wear large hats. (laughs) People dress up and, and it's the most exciting thrilling two minutes in sports now last question is that the kentucky derby is the oldest continuously held major sporting event in the united states i do believe reading that it was staged every year Tristel downs without interruption since that inaugural running of may the 17 1875 how special is that that we know horse racing is a very old historical prestigious sport but to kind of signify that by the fact that it is 
the oldest sporting event that's currently in existence still in the United States. That's to think that from 1875 through World War One, and then again in World War Two, and then through all of the upheaval that we've had in the last, you know, 50 years. And then even through 2020, when they rescheduled the Derby, which was not the first time it had been rescheduled. It was rescheduled in uh, 1945 when uh, the war department actually stopped horse racing for a a few months because they were trying to redirect um, store like certain things toward the war effort because they knew the war in in Europe was winding Mm -hmm. down. Um, it's extraordinary that you can have something like that not be interrupted by weather, by, you know, war, by pandemic. I mean, heck, just that by itself, that we can stick to this tradition and and have it happen every year speaks to how essential really the Derby has become to our culture, even that, you know, most people who don't, you know, really know that much about horse racing, know the Derby. <laughs> and, you know, even now, and I live in Alabama, so it's not very um, horse, ra- it's not a very horse racing oriented area. But, you know, when I go in to looking for my bourbon bottle and they're like, oh yeah, is it Derby time? <laughs> I was looking for the Derby, um, the Woodford Reserve Derby bottle. And the lady at the, at the ABC store said, oh yes, it's that time of the year, isn't it? And <laughs> they are wonderful collector's items. Okay. They are. And I'm really looking forward to getting mine, but I can't find the Derby one here because, you know, reasons. But the fact that the Derby has been able to become so integral to our culture that we would not allow it to stop for a pandemic has to say something to, you know, racing fans across the United States about just exactly what the Derby means. And, you know, please everyone get together and enjoy a mint julep or whatever your beverage of choice is and, you know, wear a big fancy hat and, and, you know, enjoy this tradition because, you know, it's become what it is because of people and fans like us, you know, that, that celebrate it and relish it and make it a point to, to, you know, watch it every year and to know the names of the horses and to really be invested in, in the whole process. I I think you've put that better than I ever could. It's, (laughs) it's hard to describe the feeling of being there for the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs, but even if you can't make it there, which is very normal for the majority of Mm. us, just watching the race on the the thrill when those 20 stalls open is very hard um, to describe. I always try to get family and friends into it a little bit and and give them, you know, print out a couple of past performances and and Mm. have them picking horses because then you have that vested interest as well in the race. So Jennifer, on that high note, uh, we're going to wrap up this show, but thank you so much because it's very fun. discussing you know little tidbits little aspects that make the race so special and also allow us to understand why we're doing certain things the way that we do and where those traditions came from yes thank you for the opportunity it's always anytime i get a chance to talk about the derby and the triple crown it gets me more and more excited about what's going to happen later this week i am i am super stoked now (laughs) ready to make my pick and ready to watch every all the excitement 
I'm sure you're going to bet the exacta again. You'll you'll have it. <laughs> I I am not as confident in 2022 as I was in 2007. <laughs> we'll see. My husband's pick is cyber knife at the moment. So okay. yeah, we'd all love to see Brad Cox. Yes, he's won one, but win one on the day and enjoy the traditions of the yes. winter circle and mm-hmm. all the the ceremony that comes with it because if you're not there if you've never been but you want to go do it once make it a bucket listing absolutely engage in the tradition and and make it your own and then go home and enjoy it on tv the next year because <laughs> it's fun at home and it's fun when you're there I agree. I, I'm very jealous of everyone that does it every year, logistically and financially speaking, not a possibility for myself. I am going this year though, so I'm incredibly excited to be going. My only other one to date was Justify. Oh, wow. Kentucky Derby, so I was quite lucky there. But funnily, you mentioned that the weather, come rain or shine, that oh, year yeah. was like it was pouring down with I rain. Hope- I hope the weather is better for you this year because it is always seems to be just some sort of like, you know, wet calamity in some ways, just depending on the part of the day you're talking. I threw away my shoes afterwards because Ah. they had changed colors. I'm sure that was possible, but it was that bad. (laughs) Here we went, it rained on Oaks Day. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, please don't let it be raining on derby day because i would just be so upset to have both days be wet and thankfully derby day was was nice but it was just we got rained on so hard at on oaks day i was like oh my god and i was pregnant too and i was just like oh my gosh guys okay, that that doesn't sound like fun <laughs> sounds like that sounds like a, a hard endeavor, but you're happy to be there. But yes. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a different experience. I didn't anticipate doing it pregnant, but you know, it just worked out like that. Like I'm excited we're going Oaks and Derby Day. Yes. So fingers and toes crossed. Yes. That, that Mother Nature is giving is us nice. a slight little nudge there and you know, bright little sunshine. Uh, we're overdue for a sunny day. Exactly, exactly. We've had plenty of Kentucky Derbies where it's been pouring down and foggy and we can't even see exactly right. what's going on. So let's let's have a clean, clear one so we can see the superb action because this yes. year's renewal is quite the head scratch in the best possible ways, betting-wise, as it should be, as we all want it to be. Well, Jennifer, have a lovely evening. And uh, look, it was wonderful to have you on. So thank yep. you again so much for your time. Thank you, Naomi. appreciate it. I gave it away already when chatting with Jennifer, my partner Hondo and I are going to be in attendance on both Oaks and Derby Day this year. He's never been, so it's going to be a ball. Can't wait to share with you all the insights and videos of horses on the day. Onwards to Louisville. <laughs>